got used to looking at a Bible. That's page 932 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 20, I'm sorry. I don't know where John chapter 11 was last week. I, I forgot where I was too, Brother Boons. I don't know what my, forgot when I was. That's probably a little bit worse. Um, John chapter 20, page 932 in the Pew Bibles provided. It'll also be up here on the screen. 932. Um, we've been going through a series called Signs of Life. Uh, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels. Each one of them tells the story of the Gospel, the story of Jesus' life, the story of how Jesus came and set up his kingdom on the earth. Now, John is, uh, was written much later than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so by the time John was written, they already knew the stories from Matthew, they already knew the stories from Mark, they already knew the stories from Luke. And so the John comes in and he tells different stories from Jesus' life. Uh, John will say later on that uh, if everything Jesus did were written, there wouldn't be room in all the books in the world to hold it. So he says that he, he had plenty of material to draw from. And so instead, though, of just piling miracles on miracles on miracles or different things, John picked seven miracles for the, uh, to, to tell the great story of who Jesus was. But instead of calling them miracles, he called them signs because they were not just raw displays of power. They were all things that pointed to something about Jesus. So at this point, maybe you remember the seven signs. You remember that the first sign was the changing of water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And when we saw that, we found out that the same God who turns water into wine can make a change in me and you. Uh, We saw that he healed the nobleman's son from a great distance away. We saw that Jesus did not have to be there to heal. He was the Lord of space. And just although now he is on the right hand of God in heaven, he is still just as much with you no matter where you are. And so he's the Lord of space. We saw the man at the pool of Bethesda that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. We saw that Jesus is the Lord of time. And it doesn't matter when it is, he's on in time, on time, every time. We saw that when he came and he took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 men plus women and children, we saw he is the bread of life. He is our provider. He's the one that gives us what we need. We saw... When he left there, and they tried to make him a king, and he went and retreated to pray, and then he came out and walked on the sea to show that he was the king. Then we saw the man born blind that Jesus healed. We saw that Jesus gives sight to the ones that he sends. And you remember that the Pharisees were the ones who were truly blind. And then in the seventh miracle, the climactic miracle, the last miracle that Jesus performs in his earthly ministry in the Gospel of John, Jesus called forth Lazarus because he is the resurrection and the life. So each one of these seven signs told us something about Jesus. And you see, when you put them side by side like that, what a beautiful portrait of the Savior it makes to see what we can learn about Jesus just from the main point of each of his miracles. But if I may... I want to give a little different perspective because there is one more miracle in the Gospel of John. The eighth sign, if you will. It is not a miracle that Jesus performs on someone else, but it is, of course, the one miracle other than the uh, fishes and loaves, which is also in every Gospel. There are two miracles in every Gospel. The fishes and loaves and uh, Jesus... Sorry, the... The fishes and loaves and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
So the eighth sign, the sign we're going to look at today, is Jesus conquering death, hell, and the grave by rising from the dead. John chapter 20. Now what I want to show you is that the reason this is the eighth sign is because when God created the world, everybody knows, how long did it take God to create the world? Seven days, right? Each one of these miracles sort of corresponds to that. It creates seven days. So the eighth miracle is the beginning of a new week. It's the beginning of a new creation. At the beginning of time, in the first day, God said, let there be light. And on the first day of the week, the first day of the church age, the light of the world rose from the dead. And so this eighth sign, I think, is going to be instructive to us for all the others. So the first thing I need to do is to give you just a little bit of context. Jesus, of course, died, crucified in our place, was buried by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And they had wrapped spices around his body. They'd taken, and what they would do, it was this painstaking process. They would wrap a bandage around you, and then they, around one finger. And then they would saturate that with myrrh and frankincense and these different expensive oils to create a kind of casing. And then they would do your next finger. Then they would do the next finger and then do the hand and work the way up and mummify your body. And uh, the idea behind this was, of course, that it would keep it airtight it would make it fragrant, that it would protect the body. And then when the body had eventually naturally decayed, they would take your bones out of that grave, out of this cave, and they would put them in a jar, and they would bury the jar. So Jewish burial had two phases. Now, you remember that in that climate, you needed to bury people as quickly as possible. It's hot, and they did not have modern methods of refrigeration. Um, if anybody has ever had a mouse or something die in your house... I know none of you have ever experienced that. Someone else's house that does not keep house as well as you do, there was a dead mouse in there. And you know the way that a dead mouse smells after just a little bit of time in your nice air-conditioned house. You imagine in the Jewish world, when Jesus went to heal Lazarus, remember he said, uh, Martha said, Lord, it's been four days, and now he stinks. It's, it's just rotten. The Jews believe that the fourth day was the day when decay really started to, to set in. Uh, and, of course, David said of uh, Jesus, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And so he was not allowed to remain in the grave four days. Now, so Jesus, though, is cased in this. The Bible says that Nicodemus used 100 pounds of myrrh, a little at a time. Now, the problem is, you remember, Jesus was taken down in the late afternoon from the cross because they didn't want his body to be on the grave on the Sabbath. So Nicodemus did not have time to do this all properly. So he performed a hasty burial of Jesus, and then on Sunday morning, after the Sabbath, the women intend to come and complete the job. But of course we know when, we get, when they get there, there is no body to prepare. So what do we see? John chapter 20. At this point, the uh, Jews have laid Jesus in the grave. Nicodemus has put 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes on his body, wrapped him in linen. And I mentioned the, the constant wrapping because I don't want you to get the impression uh, sometimes you see these little pictures and different things. I have this one. Uh, it's pretty. But you see that sheet that's just sort of laying there? Jesus was not rolled up in a sheet like a four-year-old playing in his bed. Okay, Jesus was wrapped piece by piece by piece. That's going to be important in just a minute. So, what we see here. The first day of the week cometh Mar Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. 
So she comes in this kind of, when you combine the different gospel accounts together, it becomes apparent that it's in the kind of milk, the, the early light of morning. It's still dark. The sun's just starting to come up. There's just a little bit of light. And she comes, so she, first thing, she gets up. She says, I've got to go to Jesus. And she, when she was ta- yet dark, taken into the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Now, I, I want you to then imagine this. There were the, these huge stones, the weight of a car, that they would roll in front of the entrance to the, uh, to the, cave, to the cave, which was the tomb. Uh, there's a groove in the ground in front of it, and they rolled it into the groove so it would slide in. Um, it does make you wonder what Mary thought she was going to do when she got there. Actually, she thought she was going to move this 1,500-pound rock. Um, but I don't know if uh, you've ever been in a, a grieving situation. You hear somebody who loves in the hospital or something. You get there, and you're like, well, I don't know exactly what I'm here to do. <laughs> There's not anything I can do, but I just feel like I need to. And so she gets there, and she figures, I'll figure out how to get rid of the stone when I come to that. I'll cross that bridge when I get there. But I've got to go there, and I've got to do this for Jesus. So she comes, and she gets to this, and she sees the stone has already been rolled away. So she runneth, she, she, she's scared. And you say, what, is, what does she think the stone being rolled away means? Well, we'll get there. So she runs and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. Uh, John doesn't refer to himself by his name in the gospel. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, it's kind of a humble thing. He doesn't draw attention to himself. And also a very insightful thing because he realized the most important thing about himself is not the fisherman. Uh, not John, the son of Zebedee, but John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He said, the most important thing about me is that Jesus loves me. This I know. So he comes and he, she runs to Simon and to John and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. I hope you can imagine that. Mary runs to them and says, they've stolen Jesus's body. And I don't know where they've put him. Now, I want you to imagine. We, we've talked before if uh, the gospel writers had just been making this up. One, uh, they wouldn't have all then died for refusing to take it back. Two, I don't know about you, but when I'm telling a story and Colleen's not there, I'm always the hero of the story. You know, I don't, I don't put my my failures and foibles. You know, if I was making this story up, if I was John and I was making this story up, I would not say, yeah, I didn't really think anything was going to happen. I thought they stole the body. You know, if I was making this story up, I would say, everybody else thought that the body was stolen, but I said, no, he's alive. If I was making the story up. But do you know why in all four Gospels the disciples are shocked when Jesus rises from the dead? It's because they were shocked when Jesus rose from the dead. (laughs) You know, again, if this is a literary fabrication designed to start a religion, one of the best things you can do is praise the faith and the integrity of the founders of your religion. But the Gospels display the apostles as clueless because they were clueless. And, of course, we know they go on to for claiming to see Jesus alive after he had died. They go on to each 
the, except Judas, the 11 go on to each lose everything they had. John dies in exile after being burned in a vat of oil. And the other 10 all die without ever taking back. They're all given the chance, you know, tell us that you didn't really see Jesus alive. And the other 10 apostles all died refusing to do it. Now, if you ask me, I wouldn't die for something I knew wasn't true. And we make this point many times. But um, Buddhism is based on one man. You know, you don't have to say Buddha was a bad guy. You just have to say he was wrong. If one person was wrong, Buddhism is false. Islam is based on one man. You don't have to say Muhammad was a bad guy. You just have to say he was wrong. He thought he had a vision and he instead didn't. He had indigestion. But if Muhammad was wrong, then Islam is false. Mormonism is based on Joseph Smith going out and seeing tablets that nobody else saw. Well, originally they said other people saw them, but all the people that said they saw the tablets took it back later. So it's based on one person. One person had to be wrong. Christianity, though, is not based on what people believe. It's not based on people dying for what they believe. It's based on, just to start with, ten people dying for what they saw. And right here, there's this immediate proof. They would not have made themselves so weak in faith as they were. So she comes, Mary Magdalene comes, and says, the body's been stolen, and I don't know where he is. Peter, therefore, went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they both ran together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. So John and Peter run. Uh, John was a little younger than Peter. John outruns Peter there. So you, you imagine John sprints. Um, at this point, you know, we, we don't really know. Um, John was probably maybe 20. Um, Peter was probably in his late 20s. So uh, if you imagine if uh, we decided to run somewhere and Darren runs out, a couple minutes later I come up panting behind him. You know. <laughs> Peter comes, and, but John gets there first. And he, John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. John looks in. And he sees Jesus' burial clothes laying there neatly on the indention, the side of the wall. Um, you know, Colleen and I have been to the empty, to the garden tomb, the place that most scholars believe is the place that Jesus was buried. And uh, there's this, it's, a, it's an indention in the wall, it's all that it is, a, a smooth place in the wall of the cave that they've cut out that then curves back over. And John looks in and he sees the burial clothes laying there. I want you to imagine, I don't know what Jesus weighed. Um, imagine he was in good shape. He walked around a country for three years. He was a carpenter before that. Uh, wouldn't be exceptionally tall, because he was a Jewish man. Uh, but you figure maybe 160. I'm just going to throw that out on a limb. Now, on top of this 160-pound man is our bandages impregnated with 100 pounds of spices. If I wanted to steal Jesus' body, I would not take the bandages with me, but I would cut them off. And if I cut them off, I would not then lay them neatly back on the side of the cave. They'd be all over the floor. There'd be this, these messes of things that I was tearing to pieces trying to get at. It's not a sheet you unwrap. Again, it's systematically wound on the body. 
So John looks, and he sees the bandages Jesus was wrapped in, laying on the side. And as he takes it in, something about the way they look keeps him from going in that cave. He stops. Now, if you ask me, my best guess is that in that moment, John began to understand that something miraculous had happened here. He said, ah, I'm standing in a holy place. And he stops. Peter has a slightly different temperament. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin which was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. See, here we have the napkin, the the linens laying there, and the headcloth laying in a separate place, wrapped up. Then went in also that other disciple, John follows him in, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. John said, I don't know exactly what happened here, but this is not a grave robbery scene. He said, Jesus stood up. And one of the really remarkable things is, of course, here, that the implication is that if the linen clothes were still laying there wound, it's that Jesus just came up straight through it. But then the headcloth is laid separately. So John wants us to understand two different things here. He wants us to understand that as the Lord of space... Jesus passed straight through. But his his resurrection was not a spiritual resurrection. He didn't become a ghost to walk around. He still had a real physical body and picked up the napkin and laid it over here. And you imagine Jesus not as somebody panting and defeated. You imagine him as the king rising up, neatly folding it up calmly, laying it aside and walking out. Walks out like he owns the place. Of course he does. So here is this powerful, powerful thing. And just as when Jesus was healed the nobleman's son from a distance here, as the Lord of space, the bandages and the gravestone cannot hold him. As you read the other gospel accounts, it becomes clear that the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out, but to let the witnesses in. (laughs) Because it could not hold him. It had no power over him. So he is still the Lord of space. In fact, I'll go even further, and now that we've gotten to the point that he was raised again on the first day of the week, I will say he is the Lord of time. He said, no sign. Well, in Matthew uh, 12, 39 through 40, uh, if you're the kind of person who likes to write in your Bible, that would be a good thing to write in the margin here, uh, maybe even by verse 31 of this chapter. Matthew 12, 39 through 40, it says, uh, Jesus said, well, let me turn there. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus said, I will rise again on the third day. He said, I am the Lord of time. (laughs) Jesus rose again when he said he would, how he said he would. Complete control. They say it's a sign. They say eighth sign. The perfect sign, the complete sign that pulls all the other signs together. They believed. 
But it says in verse 9, For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. They didn't understand. You say, what do you mean they didn't know the scripture? They'd read Micah uh, for two days, that will oppress us, the third day will rise again. They read that, uh, that in Isaiah 53, that his generations would be cut off, but then at the same time that he would rise again and rule. They saw all these scriptures that said that he would rise again, but they didn't know them. How often is that true for you, that you know something, but you don't know it? And this is my fear about a great many Christians, a great many, a great many professing Christians, a great many church members, is that you know these things are true about God here. You know Jesus died for you, and you know he rose again, but you don't know the scripture. <laughs> and, you know, they, they's, people say the great, uh, f- great philosophical debate, so, you know, is... Uh, Heaven, a physical place, you know, could you get there in a rocket ship? How far is heaven from hell? And the one answer to that question is the distance from hell is eight inches. Heaven to hell is eight inches from here to here, whether you know it in your head or you know it in your heart. So here's this powerful, powerful thing. He, they didn't understand yet. They were still blind. If I can give the game away a little bit. Verse 10. Then the disciples went away again into their own home. The disciples said, wow. They walked away, and they went back home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped and looked down into the sepulcher. So Mary comes back by herself. She may have come a little behind Peter and John. Uh, they ran ahead, and she may have walked up and caught up to them. She passes them as they're going back. And she comes to the sepulcher and she kneels down and she looks inside and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. She comes, and she's crying, she's sobbing. And there's two angels, and she thinks they're just people. And in her grief, she doesn't think, well, how strange it is that these two people are sitting in there. She just says, there's only one thing she can think about. They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. So they say, why do you weep? Then I want you to see this. And when she had said thus, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? Jesus adds a little bit to the question. She says, Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Because the aching of her heart was not a thing. The aching of her heart was a person. And she, he said, she, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. He says, if you're, the guard, if you're the one that's sort of the keeper of the graveyard, and you've moved his body somewhere, just tell me where it is, and I'll put him back. There won't be any harm. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. She looks at Jesus, and because here he is in the place that she expects the least, standing up, 
alive and well in the middle of the garden. She doesn't recognize him. But when she says, when he says her name, there it is. She says, Master. Jesus had previously said in John, my sheep know my voice and they hear when I call. Jesus had proved that when he said, Lazarus, come forth. And on the other side of the grave, Lazarus heard his voice and rose. And here when he says, Mary, the sound of Jesus calling out her name touched her heart and she saw. A couple of observations there. One, the Bible says that your name, if you are a Christian, is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that means that at the last day, the resurrection or the rapture, God calls you by name. He knows your name and you hear his voice and up you go. Second observation, Mary saw Jesus but did not see him. She was blind. But the one who gave sight to the blind man gives sight to Mary. Why did he give sight to the blind man? He gives sight to the ones he sends. And here he goes and he's going to send Mary out. You see why I told you the eighth sign was all the signs kind of crammed together, pounded together. Here it is in one act. God shows you everything about who Jesus is. One sign, one thing that points to the heart of who he is. So, she sees, she says, Master, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. He says, Touch me not. Uh, That doesn't mean, you know, you can't touch me at all because he's going to have Thomas touch his hands at his feet uh, later on. He's saying, don't cling to me. Just don't hold on to me here because I'm not done. But there's going to be time to hold on to me. I'm going to ascend to my Father and to my God and to your Father and your God, and we're going to be together. You can cling to me in eternity there. He says, but right now I've got a task for you. I need you to go. That word, uh, the, the touch me is, the, is a certain Greek tense that means continue to touch me. Don't, don't, don't hold on. You can't have me like this. And again, that brings us up to something else Jesus had said in, his gospel, in this gospel, in the gospel of John. He had said that it is better for you if I go. Because if I don't go, the comforter won't come. Jesus said, until I leave, until I ascend to heaven, the Holy Spirit won't come down. And he says, the Holy Spirit in you is better than me with you. God in you is better than God with you. You think Emmanuel is great. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God lives inside of you if you're a Christian. If any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If the Holy Spirit doesn't live inside of you, then you're not a Christian. So, he says here, in this powerful, powerful thing, don't hold on to me, because it'll be better for you for me to go away. I go to my Father and your Father. The Bible says that uh, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. Also in Ephesians, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us. It, it, there's this powerful, powerful thing that we have the same Father as Jesus because the Son of God has given us the power to be called the sons of God. Not in the same sense as Jesus is. You know, Jesus is the ontological true Son of God from eternity past. He is God himself. But God said, I want, Jesus says, I want you to have the same kind of intimacy with me. I want you to have that kind of relationship with me. 
And so we see this powerful, powerful change in Mary. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. The disciples are all hiding with the doors locked. They said, they killed Jesus, they could kill one of us next. And Jesus passes through the wall and says, Peace be unto you. So, in uh, the millennium, when you've got your glorified body, and some of you were saying, you know, we're thinking you weren't going to come to church here because you're going to live in Hawaii or something. You can just go fast. You can just pass through the wall. Peace be unto you. He is no longer bound by space. They think things are not barriers for him. So he just comes in and says, peace. Um, and I, I just, I wish that we could imagine that. That in the midst of our fear, in the midst of all the things that shake us and make us feel so insecure, that Jesus comes in and he says, peace. And when he had so said, he showed unto him them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. They see the nail scars in his hands, they see the hole in his side, and they were glad when they had been afraid. One thing I want to point out to that then there is that just as Jesus made a change when he turned the water into wine, when he showed up in the midst of the disciples, he made a change in their hearts and he turned their mourning into gladness. Of course, Jesus will do the same thing for you. If you let him come up, come into your life, he will turn your mourning into gladness and he'll say to your heart, peace, be still. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And uh, whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now, there's a lot to this, and I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds of it because the Holy Spirit doesn't actually come to indwell them until Pentecost. Uh, but Jesus breathes on them because he wants them to understand that he, it's his spirit that they're going to receive. And as the Lord of time and space, he can give it to them now and they receive it uh, 50 days later just as easily, or 47 days later, just as easily as if he were physically there. He says, this is my gift to you. And then just as Jesus, when the people were hungry and he had five loaves and two fish and he fed a multitude with it, he was the provider. Here, he says, I give you the Holy Spirit so that when I'm gone, you will have everything that you need. (laughs) You say, five loaves and two fish is not enough to feed a multitude. How can the spirit of one man be with all men? Because when God shows up, Because Jesus was the God-man and it's the Spirit of God himself. God is in your heart and in my heart 
And when somebody else gets saved, it's not like there's a little less of us because he gets spread a little thinner. <laughs> you know, God is everywhere and there's 12 baskets left over. There's plenty. There's plenty for you. There's plenty for me. And so there is no, there's no depths that God can't reach. And it gives us the ability to give people the forgiveness of sins. And there's many different interpretations of this verse, but I'm going to give you mine. And uh, it wouldn't be the first time that I've been wrong, but I think that it means one thing and one thing only. That when we preach the gospel, when we tell someone how they can place their trust in Jesus and be forgiven, we give them the ability to have their sins remitted. But if we don't tell them, if we retain their sins, if we don't give them the answer to their sins, they have no other hope. You are God's plan to save the world, and there is no plan B. He has entrusted unto us the ministry of reconciliation. If you want to give people access to forgiveness of sins, you must give them access to forgiveness of sins. And how can you do it? You say, well, I can't speak. I don't know what to do. And you remember if you've read the Gospel of John, that Jesus said in that day, don't worry about what you'll say, because the Holy Spirit give you words. So he said, I give you everything you need. I am your provider. With the weakness of your flesh, the five fish and two loaves of you will feed a multitude. God says, I will provide. Jesus says, I am the provider. We have seen six of the seven signs. We have seen that he is the change maker, the one that turned water to wine. He made a change in the hearts of the disciples. We've seen he's the Lord of space. He passes into rooms. He passes through fabric. We've seen he's the Lord of time. Just when he said he was in time, on time, every time, on the third day, he rose up. And of course, 47 days from the coming of the Holy Spirit, he did it. We've seen he's the provider as he gives the Holy Spirit everything we need. We've seen he's the king. So he rises up and now he sends people out. He gives the orders. He, he is... When he rose up from the grave, maybe I didn't explain this as I should have. When he rose up from the grave, that stone had been placed there by the Roman government and sealed. Do not open. But it was appealed to a higher court and removed. Jesus was the king. We see on and on and on, but angels come to attend to his bedside. He's the king. We saw that his Mary did not recognize him, and then she did, that he gives sight to the blind. So there is one more sign to see. Verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, which means the twin, Thomas the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the prints of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. He said, it just can't be true. Until I felt it, I will not believe. And you've probably met people like this. So, you know, until God comes down from heaven with a banner, I will not believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. So we read the other Gospels. It seems as if Jesus appeared to other people during this eight days. But while everybody else was fellowshipping with Jesus, spending time rejoicing, Thomas had eight days of misery. Now, 
I don't know about you, that's kind of sad. Everybody else has hope, everybody else has life, but Thomas says, I can't, I can't believe. And he made his life miserable for himself for a week because he wouldn't believe. But Jesus comes and says to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. He says, stretch out your finger, put it in my hand, stretch out your hand and put it in my side and believe. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Said Thomas, you believe because you see. Blessed are the ones that didn't and still believe. Who's one in that case? With John. John just saw the evidence and he said, I believe on the basis of the evidence. I trust that God will do what he said he would do. Peter. And Jesus says, blessed are the ones that will see, that will believe without seeing. Blessed are they happy. That Thomas, you have cheated yourself out this last week. And so all these signs existed for that purpose, to point people to Jesus. And then we come to the last two verses. And many other signs truly did Jesus, which are in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. I told you that I see all seven signs in this eighth sign. But we had only found six. Because the seventh was when Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. I am the resurrection and the life. Whosoever believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believeth in me shall never die. I am the life. And so the seventh part, the final part of the last sign still takes place today. These things are written that you might believe and that believing you might have life through his name. That just as Jesus gave life to Lazarus, Jesus wants to bring life into your heart. So you can say, I need a change. I, I, I don't do the things that I want to do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. I need to change. I'm a slave. I can't help myself. You know, sometimes my, I just feel like my life is so out of control. And Jesus says, the one that turned water into wine will make a change in you. He said, it doesn't matter where you are. I'm the Lord of space. <laughs> it doesn't matter when. I'm the Lord of time. He says, you say, well, you know, I just, I don't have the strength. I can't beat this. This is too much for me. I can't handle these problems. In my life, it's too, it's too bad. I can't, I can't handle it. And the one who turned five fish and two lo- five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 says, I am your provider. The one that gives you the spirit, the one that changes. You say, well, you don't understand. 
There's just, there are things that are bigger than me. There are powers that are bigger than me, my, my family, my job, these different things. It just keeps me from doing what I ought to do. And Jesus says, I walked on the sea. I overturned Caesar's judgment. I am the king. There is no higher authority. But then there's the one that you can't even do anything with. You say, I just don't see it. You know, I want to believe. I want to have faith. I just, I, I don't have it. I, I'm blind. <laughs> and Jesus says, just as I gave sight to the blind man, I will give sight to you. Jesus says, no man can come unto me except my father draw him. And so on your own, you know, you can't just wake up one morning and say, all right, I'd like to be a Christian today. But here's what happens. The Holy Spirit comes and shows you your sin and shows you God. And then he says, now it's your choice. There's two, there's two extremes. There's total determinism that says that God just sort of says, I pick you, I reject you, I pick you, I reject you. And that's not right. Uh, there's total Pelagianism too, which says, I pick God. That's not right either. In my sin, I can't. What happens is the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit grabs my heart and says, I open your eyes and now you choose what to do with it. And so this morning, I believe that if you will consider yourself and you'll consider your sin, you'll consider Jesus, you'll see and you'll be faced with that choice. That choice of, what will I do with Jesus? I've given you some evidence that he rose again. I tell you with the authority of the word of God that the only reason he died was because he died for your punishment. He died for the sins that you deserved. And that right now, if you'll place your trust in him, if you'll say, the Bible says, whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you'll say, yes, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I deserve your punishment, but I believe in you. That in that moment, he will make you a new creature. And so you look and you say, I'm helpless. When you come to realize that you are spiritually dead, the same one that said, Lazarus, come forth, calls you to life again. The power over death is the power in your life. So if your life is out of control, your spiritual life is non-existent. You're far from God. You have no relationship with God. Jesus says, I came down and I lived and I died so that you could have a relationship. You know, that, the God of the Bible is not a God who came and sent a letter. The God of the Bible came and was born in a stable, cried, slept, ate, drank, fled, died. He's a God who said, I want to get down where you are. I want to be close with you. I guess everybody's probably had different kinds of bosses. You've got the kind of boss who sits up and watches, and waves from time to time. You see them once a year for a performance review. Then there are the kind of people who say, here, let me show you, let me help you. Let me get down there where you are. God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, said, I will come down, I will swaddle myself in weakness, I will make myself poor, so that through my poverty you might become rich. And so, do you see the signs? Do you see the signs of life? When you look at your heart, do you see the signs that point to the life? Do you see that you have a relationship with God? Because if you don't, you can't. Even now, if you'll say, yes, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need your forgiveness. You say, well, I have to come down to the front. 
He's the Lord of space. It sees you where you are. It hears you where you are. But if you want to come and say, Lord, I'm not ashamed of you. I want to make it public. I want to follow you. I want to follow you in service. I want to follow you in baptism. I want to be the man or the woman that you want me to be. And he says, yes, I'll take you. <laughs> you know, he says, if you're ashamed of me, then I'll be ashamed of you. I hate for Jesus to be ashamed of me. So will you stand up and will you sing with us this morning? Our musicians are going to come. We're going to have a hymn of invitation and give you a chance to respond. Have you seen Jesus? And if you've seen Jesus, the response is to say, oh, Lord, forgive me. All these different signs point to who he is, and he wants to change you. As we sing. Page 124.